And uh, while you're doing that, get your Bibles out. Let's open them up to John chapter four. Uh, we're gonna be looking at a message today about the woman at the well, a very famous passage. And we'll be looking at that in just a moment. But wanna give you, first of all, I wanna give you an, uh, an update or a final tally on the Christmas offering. And uh, we're so thankful for God's people and their faithfulness. Last year, our goal was $80,000, and the actual total was $74,100. And we were just so thankful then for God's goodness and his faithfulness to us. And so we left the goal to the same for this year. The offering goal was $80,000. The actual offering was $111,900. And uh, praise God for that, right? And... Uh, I'm not going to get into all the financial stuff, but I can tell you this, that you were also faithful to your regular giving, and it wasn't robbing Peter to pay Paul, although I always appreciate it because I'm Paul in that illustration, but um, <laughs> you didn't do that. You were faithful in your giving, and, uh, and yet this offering was way beyond what I had faith to pray for, and so thankful to God for his, his goodness in it. So thank you, and uh, those funds will be taken, divided up to those seven ministries that were mentioned, and we'll get that out to them uh, just as quickly as we possibly can. So, All right, I want to talk about the woman at the well today, a very famous passage, one that you've heard about before, and, um, and maybe um, have a sense of the value of this and what Jesus was teaching and uh, how important it was. But it came out of a real-life experience for Jesus. Um, he was tired, and he was um, parched, and he needed a drink of cold water. Um, I'm, re I'm reminded in 212, uh, 2012, I mean in 2012, um, Sue and I were in uh, Giroc, Romania. That was the first church that our church supported in uh, Romania. It was in Giroc, and uh, we were there, um, partnering with them. We actually sent teams there later on, worked with their day camps and stuff like that. And, and we went for a hike when we got there. It was July. It was very hot. It was very sunny. And as I remember, it wasn't very, there wasn't much breeze. And we went for a hike and all around that town. And as we walked out of the town, there was significant hills that we went up and down. And I remember as we went along, I could see that Sue was um, starting to slow down. Uh, it was becoming difficult. And uh, I would say that uh, she got overheated and parched. We got back to the home of the pastor where we were, and she didn't actually faint, but she was out like she was done. And, uh, and what she needed was rest and water. She needed to stop and she needed some cold water. We hadn't really thought about taking water with us. We weren't sure how far we were gonna go and we just went a little too far. And, uh, and with rest and water, she revived obviously and was fine. Um, all of us were parched for sure, but it just hit her um, very hard. And uh, that's a little bit of what Jesus is going through in this text. We'll see it as we go along, but it's a situation for him. Uh, they've been walking a long way. He's been carrying the weight of ministry. We'll talk about that too. But he comes to this place and he comes to this well and he is, he's pooched, he's tired. And he asks for a drink of cold water. And he asks it from a person who, well, if she came to our church, I'm not sure how we would respond to her coming here. I was thinking about this this morning. If somebody showed up at church this morning, a visitor who we found out had been married and divorced five times, 
times and was living with the sixth man, not married. Now, our pious response would be we would never let anything out, but what would we think of that person? What, what would we really think? So as you think about this text and, and what's going on in this text, you think about the reality of what's going on as Jesus is talking to this person who we, we might want to push out to the margins and set aside. The big idea of the message today is that the good news is for all. The good news is for all. All kinds of people. I need the good news. And you'll remember we were studying, we studied about Nicodemus in John chapter three. And in John chapter three, we learned that this religious leader, he hadn't got it right. He wasn't getting it right. He was thinking through his doing and all the things he had that he had it figured out. And Jesus is saying to him, Nicodemus, you don't have it right. And then on Christmas Sunday, we took a, a look at John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world. And Nicodemus is sitting there hearing that and his head's kind of ready to explode. It's like, well, you, you just told me I got it wrong and I'm a religious leader. I'm supposed to have it figured out. And now you're telling me that the gospel, that you're, what you are bringing is going beyond this. Now, Nicodemus isn't there when Jesus is talking in chapter four, but now Nicodemus is saying, the good news of Jesus Christ is even for the people you dislike, even the people you might hate. In Galatians 3, 28 and 29, it talks about the family of God. It says, there is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, stir in our hearts. As we think about this, this woman, as we think about her sin, as we think about the hopelessness of her situation, would we see in Jesus Christ the hope? Maybe somebody's here today and they think, I'm just too far gone. Would they see in the story of this, this woman your grace and your mercy and your love extending way beyond what we would ever extend? So lead us in your word today. Guide us as we walk through this text. Encourage our hearts and give us faith, Father, to live out for the glory of our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at 42 verses, so I'm not going to take the time to read them all to you this morning, but I'm going to start in the setting of this text in verses 1 to 4. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, the work of the gospel is beginning. Jesus is demonstrating who he is. We've been seeing that in some of the texts we've been looking at. And, and, and what the trigger point in this one is uh, people are getting baptized, and there's a lot of people who are getting baptized, and the religious establishment is getting more and more uncomfortable with what Jesus is doing. And Yet it's not the right time for Jesus to confront 
in Jerusalem. That's going to come later on when he goes to Jerusalem. He's going to flip over some tables. He's going to do some things. But the revelation of who he is is a process that's happening, and it's not the right time. And so in the pressure of all that, there's these baptisms that are going on. The text is very, very clear to say that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. Um, but rather his disciples did. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of cleansing. It would become a believer's baptism later on after the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an identification of uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But right now it's a baptism of repentance and that's going on and people are repenting of their sins and they're getting baptized and the religious establishment is getting a little bit uptight about the whole thing. And so it says that he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So I got a map for us, and I have a pointer. I said if anybody falls asleep, I was going to point this right in your eyes, but I won't do that. But, um, so just so you have some sense of where things are in this story, and it's a long way away, so it's going to look like I'm nervous, but I am. So um, Jesus is down here in this area, probably more around Jerusalem. That's where he'd been. And so it says that he left and he's going up to Galilee. And we've already had some stories that come out of Galilee. But normally, you would not, as a good Jew, as a religious leader of this, you wouldn't go just straight up and down like that because you didn't go through Samaria. That's where the Samaritans were. You were supposed to hate them. You didn't like them. You were going a different way. And so you would go across the Jordan, up this side, and then back in. It was a lot further. Um, but Jesus didn't do that. The, the religious leaders would do that. But people would do it for the sake of simplicity. They would go and they would just make the trek straight up. There's a few places that we're going to learn about. Um, Sychar we're going to learn about in this text. Um, Sychar is the same place in the Old Testament. We'll see in a minute that was called Shechem. Um, and, uh, and then there's this place called Mount Gerizim. It's not named Mount Gerizim in the text, but we're going to learn about it because it is the place where the Samaritans built their temple as we learn about their faith and as we go through this text on why the Jews hated them so much, uh, that's just a little bit of the sense of what is going on. So instead of going over and across the Jordan and up and back in this way, it says Jesus needed to do this. He needed to go this way and he just went straight up. And most of what we hear about today is found right in that place called Sychar. And uh, so there you go. That's my geography map lesson. That's all I got. And uh, the pointer is put away. Um, although the road through Samaria was the shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee, pious Jews often avoided it. They did so because there was a deep distrust and a dislike between many of the Jewish people and the Samaritans. A little bit of the history, I'll just read you this. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, they exiled almost all the Jewish population, removing them from the land. All they left behind were the lowest classes of society. 136 years later, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and followed a similar policy. These ones left behind intermarried with other non-Jewish people who slowly came into the region and the Samaritans emerged as an ethnic and religious group. Their faith was a combination of commands and rituals from the law of Moses put together with various superstitions. 
Most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, disliking them even more than the Gentiles. Now, these Samaritans believed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. Samaritans built their own, te their own temple to Yahweh, but at a place called Mount Gerizim. But the Jews burned it around 128 B.C., and so this relationship just wasn't good. And this is the place where Jesus chooses to go. And so the, the text says that, um, and he had to pass through Samaria. So why did he have to pass through Samaria? The text doesn't say. The Bible isn't clear. Um, did he have to pass through Samaria because he wanted to teach the pious religious people to get off their pious religious high horse and, and that's why he did it? Did he have to do it because he didn't have time? He needed to get to Galilee? Apparently not because he hung around here for a little while. Uh, or did he do it because there was a ministry that he had to do and he knew something was coming. He knew there was going to be this meeting and he had to pass through Samaria. Doesn't really matter, but he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria, verse 5 said, called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. As I said, this town Sychar was also known in, earlier as Shechem, and it's a very important place in the Old Testament. I'm doing my read through the Bible uh, this year, and I'm a keener, especially in January, so Genesis is already done. And, um, but as I was reading through, this, this place comes up a few times, and in my studies, I saw the parallel of it. Um, here's some things about this area. This is where Abraham first came when he arrived in Canaan from Babel, Babylonia, we find that in Genesis 12. It's where God first appeared to Abraham in Canaan and renewed the promise of giving him the land to him and his descendants also in chapter 12. It's where Abraham built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord also in chapter 12. It's where Jacob would return from his sojourn with Laban in Genesis chapter 33. It's where Jacob built an altar to the Lord in Genesis 33. It's also the place where Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped and the sons of Jacob massacred the men of the city in retaliation in Genesis 34. Uh, this is uh, where the bones of Joseph were eventually buried in Joshua 24. It's also the place where jo Jacob gave land to Joseph in Genesis and this is where Joshua made a covenant with Israel, renewing their commitment to the God of Israel and proclaiming, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A lot of stuff happens around this area in the Bible. And so it was an important, an important place. But in chapter four and verse six, it says, Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well it was the sixth hour of the day. The sixth hour is noon. Uh, Jesus is wearied from his travel. That word is more than just he was a little bit tired. It's, it's like he had utter exhaustion. They'd probably walked a long way. They were making good time. Um, and he's exhausted. And he stops. And he needs to. He rests. I love that John demonstrates the humanity of Jesus along with the divinity and the deity of Jesus Christ. But he shows Jesus as one who went through things just like, like we go through. And he says that he was wearied and he was exhausted. 
I wondered a little bit, was he exhausted just because he had walked so far? The other guys had walked that far. Or, or was he exhausted not only because of that and the sun on him, but also the weight that he carried of, of the ministry that he knew was his to carry. He's caring for these 12 men who are walking with them and he's feeling the load of the ministry and it just wearied him. So he needed a place to rest and he needed a cup of cold water. Church, ministry is exhausting. Ministry is exhausting. Uh, preaching on Sunday is a wonderful thing and it's a great opportunity, but the overwhelming sense of responsibility when you stand up and open God's word is exhausting. The attack that comes from the evil one after preaching the word or teaching or being involved in ministry is because we're doing things that the world hates and the evil one hates and it's exhausting. And so Jesus in this text, he's, he's exhausted. He's exhausted. It's noon. He comes to this spring and he's thirsty. The Greek word that Joshua or John used to describe in verse six was the, the word that was used for a well. It was just a well. It's, it's still probably there today, assuming it's the same one. But he used a different word later on in verses 11 and 12, and it's the word cistern. And so it would appear that there was this spring of water that came up and they built a cistern on it and it's where the people would come out from the town and they would get their water. And uh, so that's the setting. That's kind of where we now meet the reality of what is about to happen. It's at this well. Jesus is exhausted. And then we come to the narrative and in the narrative of this, we see just a series of revelations as I was studying through it, it came clear to me. There's just so many things that are revealed. And then later on in this message, we're gonna see what should that reveal to us. But uh, let's take a look at some of them. Here's the, the first one about the uh, revelation is the revelation just simply of the circumstances. In verses seven uh, through 15, it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so she's already on like, what are you doing? Why are you even talking to me? You are a, you are a rabbi. Rabbis didn't talk to women in general at all. And now he's in Samaria and he is talking to this woman. Not only do rabbis not talk to women, but Jews didn't talk to Samaritan women. And we're about to find out that this woman was pretty messed up in her, her sin. And yet, Jesus asks, give me a drink. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now a new concept is being added to this story. Jesus has asked for water and he's like, boy, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me and I would give you, I would give to you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Right? For us, knowing the rest of the story, it's like, what was wrong with her? How didn't she understand? No, no. You got this guy who's just parched. He just needs a drink. He asks for a drink. And then he says, if you would just ask me the right thing, I would give you living water. And then she's back on the, what about this living water? Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Remember, I read through all of those things that had happened in this area with Jacob. Um, Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become um, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so she's still thinking what Jesus is talking about is some kind of a human fulfillment. If I, you, you've got some magic water I'm going to drink, and I won't have to come back to the well again. I won't have to come back to the well again. And uh, Jesus obviously is talking about something very, very different. That's the circumstances that we find. In verses 16 to 19, we see the revelation of, of, the, great, of the great need. Now look what it says. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you have five husbands. And the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive You are a prophet. Jesus reveals in that statement the great need in her life and the mess that she is in. She's coming to the well at noon because she couldn't come in the morning when the regular people would come. She had been despised in her community. She had been set aside in her community. And so she's there at noon when the noonday sun is hot, when it's more difficult to go. That's when she is there. And Jesus says, go, go, get your husband. Go, bring him. I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't. And then she said, there's the story of this interaction with her, five divorces, And she's now living with a man who's not her husband. I was just really struck. I mentioned it already in the the, uh, first part of this message, but I was really struck by that and just the reality of the scope of her sin. Um, How would I respond to her as a pastor in my church? How would I care for her? How would we love on her? I'm not sure we would do that well. Maybe we would. You surprised me in the Christmas offering, so who knows, right? If you think your sin is too great for the love of Jesus Christ, you have a small view of Jesus. 
If you think the people that Jesus can care for only reaches the level of your kind of common sin, and then it's somebody's out there and they go, they're sitting there even this morning going, if you only knew, if you only knew, look, look at this person. Think about the apostle Paul consenting to the death of Christians and Christ loved him. The expanse of Christ's love is so awesome and is so awesome even in this text. We have this revelation of the great need. Then we have the revelation of who Jesus is and also the required response of worship. The word worship appears nine times in this next part. And uh, it's found in verses 20 to 26. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this mountain is around Gerizim. That's the, where they had their temple. And that's where they worship. And so you have this thing going back and forth between the Samaritans worship and the Jewish worship. That's really what's happening here. Um, and Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's who I am. So you have the clash of the, of the faith of the Samaritans and the Jews and where they are worshiping. She's worshiping God, Jehovah, trying in their view of things at Mount Gerizim and, and, and the Jews are worshiping in Jerusalem and Jesus is coming. There's something way better coming. Uh, and that is pointing to what would be the finished work of Christ the, the, when, when, the, when the dwelling place of God would be in the heart of man. where Jesus truly would be worshipped. And he would be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The truth of God's word would be the focus of our worship. The heart of the passion of man would be the passion that we would go after God. It wouldn't be just doing all of these things so we can be right with God, but in a, a relationship with Jesus Christ restored by the finished work of the blood that we were singing about, that, that would be the foundation of our worship. And we would worship him not just in truth, but we would worship him in spirit and in truth. There's so much we could go into. We're not going there today. But there was this revelation of who Jesus is. And she knew that the results of all this required her worship. And we should understand that the results of the work of Jesus Christ requires our worship, our, our passion for him, our love for him, our exaltation of him. Well, the story goes on, and then we have the revelation of discomfort in the process. Remember, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, a rabbi who doesn't talk to women, a, a Jew who doesn't talk to Samaritans at all. 
And then verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. It's interesting, he doesn't say with a Samaritan there, right? They marveled he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Jesus often would move out into the fringes to the uncomfortable for the sake of the gift that he was offering. When the disciples come back, we already know that they got to this place and Jesus stops and they, they've gone to get him food and they come back with this food and he's talking with this woman that he from their perspective, shouldn't be talking to. And yet, I can't even imagine their heads must have just about exploded because none of them for sure had the courage to even ask him, really like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to her? Uh, what is, what's going on her or with her? Um, no one said. No one said. It's all going on in their heads. They're all thinking the same thing. It's all going on in their heads. Well, then we come to 29 to 30, and we have a, a revelation of genuine seeking. Um, so verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, Rabbi, eat. And so she goes back into the town and she's talking to anyone who will listen. She goes, I've just met with somebody. Now understand, nobody wants to talk to her in the first place. I've just met somebody who knows my whole story. He knows everything about me. And I never told him. He's just there and he knows. And their interest is kindled for sure. Um, She's genuinely trying to figure out who this Jesus is. So let me go back to the text. Verse, um, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, so he's come to this well. He's thirsty. He's exhausted. He's hungry. And they've gone to town to get him some food. And they come back. Makes sense. Rabbi, you need to eat. Rabbi, you need to eat. And Jesus is revealing his purpose here. He says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, is Jesus carrying Snickers bars in his <laughs> tunic and we don't know about it? And uh, And Jesus said to them, Here's my food. Should be my food. Paul Whittingstall's food too. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, church, that's what we're supposed to be about. My food. And Jesus says to them, my food. What, what is really going to fill me, Jesus said, is to do the will of God. My food is your pastor needs to be. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
small group leader, your food is to do the will of God who sent you and accomplish his work. Youth leader, hope kids worker, your food is to do the will of God who sent you and to accomplish his work. You know, we pray every Sunday morning at 8.15, around 8.30. And, uh, and, and I, I pray for, well, we all pray, but I pray for everyone who serves, that we would come together and we'd be serving and, and, and that so many people serve and no one knows, right? People make coffee, people serve at the door, people clean things up, people do stuff that nobody knows. And we sit in here and I ask on Sunday, who's teaching the kids today? Because I want to know so we can pray for them in that setting as well. Because what, our, what's, our, what's our food? What, what fills us? What spiritually should turn our crank is to do the will of him who sent us to accomplish his work. And Jesus is fulfilling or revealing his, his purpose to them. Um, well, we go on into the text and we see the urgency of this task. Um, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, you lift up your eyes and see that the fields are, are white unto harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying, for the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap um, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have earned, have, have entered into their labor The urgency of the task. The fields are ripe to harvest. And they're white. So as they would look out over, they knew it was time to, to glean the wheat because of the color of the fields. And it's time, it's time to reap. It's time to reap. And you'll reap some things that other people sowed. And, and you will reap some things that you sowed. And sometimes you will sow and you won't see the reaping. Um, but we need to be ready. And Jesus is telling them, my, my food, my food is to do the will of him. There's a reaping that's ready to happen. We were at our pastors and wives retreat last year and uh, we were talking about uh, two Bible texts that kind of say the same thing. Um, one is found in, um, in Matthew and the other one is found in Luke, I believe it is. Um, but in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, it says, and then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If you went into my calendar, drive Sue crazy because there's something on every single day. And she's like, oh, now I got to go and see what it is. And, and Every single day at 9.38 in the morning, actually it comes on a half an hour before 9.38, is a reminder. A reminder to pray that prayer. A reminder to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his field. I, I pray that the context we were learning about was praying for church planters. I pray that every day for our church, 
that the Lord would allow us to plant another church or another two churches, that the Lord would send forth laborers, that the Lord would bring to us a young man who could be the church plant pastor for us to have another church plant. Then I pray for that for our, our movement across Canada and for churches across Canada and around the world that the Lord would send forth laborers. Why? Because the field is ripe. The field is white. The field is ready for harvest. But I also pray it for our church that God would send forth laborers, people who would be faithful in our children's ministry and our young adult ministry, people who would be faithful in our youth ministry, people who would be faithful small group leaders, and that God would send them forth. Why? Because the fields are ripe. The fields are ripe. And there is an urgent task. There's an urgent task. Then the last part of the text, 39 to 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Hmm. God can use use the most messed up people to draw people to Christ. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. After the two days he departed to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Jesus is is shown as the Savior. He's shown as the Messiah. They didn't just believe in her testimony, but they came and they saw who Jesus was. That's the story. That's what happened. Jesus Christ loves the unlovable person and uses the most unloved person in her town to be a a gospel witness that draws other people to the cross, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches his disciples, my bread, my bread, your bread, is just to do the will of God, what God calls us to do. Let's just do what God calls us to do. Well, so, not so what, but what are the implications? What are the implications for you and I? At the end of Christ's ministry, he said, um, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm um, putting the picture up on the screen. Um, I saw this, this came across my Facebook feed the other day. It says, we cannot force someone to hear a message they are not ready to receive. But we must never underestimate the power of planting the seed. You can't change a heart. It's not your job to change a heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get that confused. We think, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got No, no. You need to be praying. You need to be praying. You need to be faithful. You need to plant the seed. And then you need to allow God to do the work that God can do. We must never underestimate the power of planting a seed. So what can we learn from this text? What can we learn from this text that can help us in our sense of evangelism? 
in our passion for people who need the Savior. And uh, I have seven lessons that I came across. I would love to tell you I came up with all of these on my own. I didn't. They were from something I found, but it was so helpful for me. And as I was studying, they just fit so well. So seven evangelism lessons, and we find them even in this text. Here's the first, time, first thing is we need to contact people socially. We need to be in contact with people socially. When we lived up in Muskoka, I used to play uh, shinny hockey once or twice a week. Why? I desperately needed the exercise, for sure. But I was working in a ministry that just kind of consumed you all of the time. I needed some outlets where I actually rubbed shoulders, talked to people who weren't Christians. And to sit in a dressing room with guys who are about my age uh, playing hockey, you, you reach the world, you meet the world really quickly. And that was a great opportunity. There were two or three of us who played who were Christians, and, and I think we had some gospel impact on them. Um, you need to talk with your neighbors. Uh, sometimes as Christians, I think we uh, find ourselves um, isolating ourselves. Um, the principle of fishing is you go where the fish are. If, if you want to have a gospel impact, you need to have um, contact with people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be fearful of that. We need to, we need to embrace that. We need to encourage that. Um, we believe in separation for sure, but we don't believe in isolation. We don't, the world doesn't influence us to where we're going and what we're doing. We have to guard against that, be, be, be careful with those things. But we don't do, move to isolation. And so if your contacts are only around people you are safe around, uh, that's not a good life for you in Christ. Separate from the world, from its influences, but not isolated from it. And so we have an opportunity for contact in our schools and our work and in our recreation and in our, our neighborhood. Jesus made contact. He made contact with um, a whole society that we would be uncomfortable with. And yet he did that. Contact people socially. Here's the next one. Establish a common interest. Establish something that's common for you to, to talk about. Uh, Jesus came, or she came to draw water. He was thirsty. Uh, the places of contact are often the cause of common interest. And, and so I remember, it was a year or so ago, but talking to my neighbor two doors down from me, who is a Muslim, um, not a very good one, I would say, but he is a Muslim, and uh, we were talking, and we were talking about extremism. And he was interested in the extremism's in Christianity, and I was interested in the extremisms in the Muslim faith, and we had a great conversation. Where will that go? I have no idea where that will go. Uh, helped him to understand more about what my faith was and where we stand on things and how our passion is to love people and care for people and see them come to know Christ. And But we had this common interest, and the common interest, as weird as it was, was extremism. And so we had that conversation. And uh, you have lots of places where common interest with the world. Um, if your kids are in school or in your work or in your recreation or with your neighbors, it's looking for opportunity to talk about common interest. Jesus didn't say he was the living water. That wasn't the first thing he said. He started with some conversation. He started with some um, interaction with this woman. 
The next thing that I would say is you need to arouse spiritual interest. Interjecting things about your faith without asking them to do anything. Just talking about your faith. Just talking about... Um, could be and your kids going on a youth retreat. It could be anything. And, they, and, and it starts out, well, what's that? What do they do that? And what do they do there? And they don't know what it is. And so you start to talk about something that creates a, an interest. It's, it arouses an interest. Uh, we went to church last week. It was Christmas, man. It was so interesting just to see how we remembered Jesus at Christmas. And allow And if the conversation goes somewhere, go somewhere with it. And Here's another point. Don't go too far too fast. Don't go too far too fast. She wanted the living water. I want that water. That water you're offering, Jesus, that's what I want. That way I won't have to come out to this stinking well every day and get water. See, she didn't understand. And she needed to understand more. And so the process in evangelism with people takes time. It takes time. And we need to be willing to allow time to pass and be faithful and behind all of the conversation, have a time that's filled with prayer for them and don't be driving to the end all of the time when people aren't ready for the end. I remember as I grew up and as, as a kid, Canada was a Judeo-Christian country. Basically, everybody knew who Jesus was. It's not like that anymore. People don't have a clue who Jesus is. And if we start with you need Jesus on the cross and what he did for you. And it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So we need to bring people along and not go too far too fast. Here's another one. You don't need to condemn unnecessarily. Don't condemn unnecessarily. It would have been easy for Jesus to leave her in her sin. It would have been easy for Jesus just to go, don't you understand how messed up you are? And just, just beat her with her sin. He said, uh, go get your husband. And as she's explaining, mm, I don't have a husband. I've had five husbands. And the one I've got is not my husband. Jesus is going to, see, you wretch, you wretch, you wretch. He doesn't even talk about it anymore. Don't condemn unnecessarily. She was a mess. It became clear to her that she was a mess. It became clear to her that she needed a savior. And now she's back in the town talking to people. There's this guy up there and he's telling things about me that, that no one could possibly know if you just weren't right here. Here's another point. Stick with the main issue. Stick with the main issue. Or another way of saying it is keep the main thing, the main thing. She wanted to talk about where they should worship. We, we worship here, and you worship there, and we do this, and you do that, and, and Jesus allowed that conversation to happen, but then Jesus steers the conversation back around to who he was, and he is the one who needs to be worshipped. And then the last one was confront directly. Truth must be communicated, but it must be done in love. He confronts her with her sin, but he does it in a, a loving, caring, compassionate way. So we never sacrifice the truth. You can't sacrifice the truth. 
But you don't beat people with the truth at the expense of demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ. If people are talking to you about, so who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Then maybe you're a little bit too truth oriented in this and you're setting yours, you look, you're making yourself look like something when you're just a sinner saved by grace like everybody else is. Confront directly. He confronted her sin, but then he confronted her with who he is. See, the whole point is the gospel. The whole point is the gospel. And sometimes people want to get off on a tangent and whatever. And, and you say, you know what? I'll, we'll come back. Let's talk about that. Let's meet together tomorrow. We'll talk about that. But right now, let's talk about this. Because at the end of the day, the gospel is the point. The purpose of our lives. To glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. That we would be people of God who are passionate in our world for people who need Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're hearing this message and you're like, well, I don't even know if I understand who this Christ is. Well, that's fine. This is part of the process. Just listen to God's word. Listen to what he says. Listen to what Jesus teaches. Take this gospel of John and read it and ask yourself, who does Jesus say he is and what do I need to do as a result of it? Just understand who Christ is. But if you're here today and you've come to that place of understanding Jesus, I'm, I'm reading it. I'm seeing it. I understand. I need this. Because in this text it says they believe, they believe, they believe. They believe to the level they could understand. The gospel is not complete because the cross is not finished yet, but they believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of Christ and the cross of Christ and be saved and be saved. She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But God's grace has been poured out on me for I grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Well, so what? So what? Here's a few things. One, love even your enemies. Even the one who is unlovable to you. If there was ever anyone, Jesus should have just put his head down and just kept on going by. She's the picture of it. But Jesus loved. Even those that the people around him hated, he loved. Here's the next thing. The seed is ripe for harvest. Jesus says it is. And so church, seed's ripe for harvest. What are we doing? And seeing the seed that is sown and seeing the seed being reaped and seeing the lives that are being changed that's ripe for harvest. Who are you praying for? Every single day, who are you praying for? That the Lord would open up an opportunity for you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them or continue in that with them. The Lord would take them from being a green apple to being a red apple ready for the, for the time when they would trust Christ. The seed is ripe for harvest. Next thing is make the most of every opportunity. Every opportunity. When the Lord opens a door, just walk through it and trust him. Don't, don't look for the result. Don't like, oh man, I tried again and he never trusted Christ. It's, it's okay. That's not your job. 
Allow God to change hearts in his time. You just be faithful and allow God to work. Jesus has gone in the process of exposing who he is and who he's for to from Nicodemus and the Nicodemus, you religious leader, you've got this figured out. You, you, don't, you don't have it right. To John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life too. And that world is even the people that we don't like. It's even the people that we hate. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the good news is for all. And you've received it. Now how do you become a, how do you become a, um, a tool to be used by the Lord to share that good news with others? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of this lady. I must admit, even as I was reviewing this morning, I, I really was uncomfortable with how you loved her and how I am so often judging people on their appearance or, or what maybe they've done in their lives. And, and Father, the conviction of you love the unlovable. You did it with me. You've done it with every one of the followers of Jesus Christ that's in this room or watching today online. You, if, if we've trusted you, we, we were unlovable. We were sinners. And you loved us. And yet, Lord, you use us. The fields are ripe to harvest. So give us passion. Passion for that person who just ticked us off. Passion for that person who has hurt us. Passion for that family member who needs Christ. That we would seek out every opportunity that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be real and powerful in their lives. And we will hear the story in 2024 of people who've trusted Jesus Christ because of faithful servants along the way. Lead us, God, in all of these things for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.